Uh, in our Bibles to Luke, as most of you know, we've been walking through the book of Luke together, through this section of Luke called the Luke and Travel Narrative. As we turn there, uh, uh, let's, if you would, just open your bulletin one more time here. We're going to read the summons to the Word. I don't know how you think about the Bible. For many of us, this book is, uh, we know that it's kind of the sacred book, it's these sacred writings, but it's very distant, written in a distant time, in a different culture, different language. It's intimidating, it's scary, it's somewhat enigmatic. But the word, the word, this word is not no other word. And even this morning, as we go through Jesus' words this morning, I hope that you see the uniqueness of what we're about to do, that we're about to not simply discover or, re- or consider the words of you know, a religion of long ago or the words of holy men of long ago, but rather the very word of God. And so it's this summons to the word that, that calls us to, um, to simply to, to heighten our sense of awareness. Why is that? Why do we need to be sort of sobered, woken up? I don't know if you've ever heard of a phrase called the leans. You know what the leans are? If you've ever been in an in a, in a, in a airplane, at least a, a small airplane, you know that actually uh, airplanes can be quite deceptive in, uh, as they fly along. In fact, a larger, larger aircraft or air, major airlines, you don't really, really, wouldn't really notice this. But in a smaller aircraft, if you get into a turn and you sustain that turn, or you actually begin to do a decline where you do a spiral to descend in altitude, your body will actually begin to acclimate to that turn. And so you're turning, but you don't realize you're turning. Or you're descending, and you don't realize you're descending. And it's one of the most dangerous things for pilots, is they, they lose their sense of orientation and suddenly they realize that they think this is this. And so they go, they're, they're, they're flying on along like this in a, in a bank, not realizing, and they go to turn left. And what happens? They go, they go straight into the ground. In fact, I, just, I have friends uh, who, who are still in the Air Force, was in the Air Force for a while. Their friends were still in the Air Force, they're pilots. And, some, and every once in a while, some of these pilots get asked to do something that they absolutely hate to do, and that's to do an, an accident investigation. And they'll they'll be part of a team that goes in and looks to see what happened. Some pilot somehow just takes off from an aircraft, you know, it's an A-10, it's an F-16, takes off, begins a sustained bank in a certain direction, and then takes and suddenly suddenly just uh, yanks left and drives his his aircraft right into the ground and dies. And so often, do you know why that happens? It's because they trust, they trust their sense of up and down, their own internal sense of direction, instead of looking at the instruments. And often when, when, a, when a pilot is looking at their instruments and they feel, they feel, every part of them feels that they should turn left, they look at the instruments and they realize that this is the truth, this is, this is latitude, this, this, is, this is straight up, this is the horizon, and they actually turn the aircraft they turn the aircraft to, 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 to turn upright. And as they're turning, they sit there and their whole body is leaning. It's called the leans. Because their body thinks they're actually turning in a, in, a new, in a new direction. They're turning to the right when actually they're actually turning simply, um, simply horizontal. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it's called the leans. 
All of you know what this is. Those of you who are kids, if you've ever done this, if you kids, you ever like spin around, you just keep spinning and spinning and spinning, and then you try to walk straight? You ever done that? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, this is the thing. After church, if you've ever done this, you gotta do this, okay? <laughs> this, is, this is your homework. You spin around, spin around, spin around, spin around, keep going, going, and you stop, and you do everything you can to walk straight. And I'll bet you that you can't do it. You suddenly go, whoa, and you go off in this weird direction. That's a form of the leans. The leans are this thing where pilots realize that they cannot rely on their own internal feelings and emotions and perceptions of life. They need something outside of themselves to orient them, to help them see up from down, right from left. And that's exactly how the Word of God functions. It functions precisely in this way. So as we go to the, as we go to the scriptures, let's read this, the summons to the word taken from Psalm 119. Listen to this beautiful words of enticement, how the word equips us. The psalmist says, I will never forget your commands. They make me wiser than my enemies. Huh, not bad. Your word is a lamp for my feet. It is a light for my path. Amen. So that's, just, that's again, a summons to the word as we go this morning. This morning we have, again, another passage from Jesus. This is in Luke chapter 14. Uh, my understanding, we look here in the bulletin. Uh, it's, if, you're, if you're following along in the Blue Pew Bible, it's on page 874. Page 874. And uh, Jesus here is uh, going to be typical, typical Jesus. Just incredibly unreasonable. <laughs> very, very uh, just... Simply, it's just, it's just not, uh, what's the word? It's just not, not really plausible. Jesus is so uncompromising. He demands of us what seems so strange. Again, this is Luke chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse 25. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Again, Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Uh, hear now the word of the living God. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he, that is Jesus, turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 10,000 soldiers, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 soldiers. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, if any one of you, excuse me, there, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. 
And Jesus concludes, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And Jesus' words astonishing. The demands, I mean, what is this, who does this guy think he is? Right? Such strong words that he gives us. Yeah, these words about just kind of this demand for loyalty that we see in verse 25, and then these two illustrations of, of building a tower and going to war. Jesus is speaking of counting the cost, the cost of following him. And then you have these strange words at the end about salt. And it's like, where does this come from? Salt and losing its saltiness. We'll talk about that. It, it, it pertains exactly to our passage. But here, the, the simple idea that Jesus wants to communicate, this is, I think I can, I can communicate this or I can uh, summarize this in a very simple way. Jesus demands our unrivaled loyalty. An unrivaled loyalty that gives life. Life to ourselves, but also life to others. It's a loyalty that is unrivaled by kin and by culture. And the question this morning is really, is, is Jesus worthy? Is he worthy of that kind of loyalty? Of that unrivaled loyalty? Is, is that really something that he is worth? All of us know who Dr., uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was, right? We, remember, we know who the king was. But m- many of us may not know who Reverend Wyatt T. Walker was. Wyatt T. Walker, he died just over a year ago at the age of 89 it was last January he passed away. And uh, perhaps some of you are familiar with that iconic photo of Martin Luther King in prison. I don't know if you can show that, Ron. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. If you have it there, Ron, you can see that picture. I know you've, you've seen that. So it's a, it's a, he's not just in a prison. He's in which prison? You want to know? Yeah, Birmingham jail. Okay. And of course, that's, it was in Birmingham jail that, that, that King wrote his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. Right? And so you see that picture. Thanks, Ron. You can put that off. But so that, that picture, though, you kind of wonder, how did someone get that picture of him in prison. Well, there was a guy there with him, Reverend Wyatt T. Walker, okay? And, and in, uh, it was in 2016 in an interview with the Washington Post that Walker said that he was the guy. He says, actually, that picture right there, I was the guy who took that picture. I was in there with King. In fact, he had somehow smuggled, this is amazing, this, right? This, he had smuggled this tiny little camera into the jail. And, uh, and it was there that he and, uh, he and King were, were in prison for about, I think about five, six days, I want to say. And see, Walker was instrumental in getting the letter that, that, uh, that King wrote in jail. He got it published. He became King's chief of staff and was, I mean, this guy was a political mastermind. I mean, and he would plan things out to the detail. He would scout out various locations for future marches, future events and rallies. And he would go out to places months in advance and he would plan out the strategies in detail. In fact, he writing or sharing with a, one of the, in his interviewers, he said, in Birmingham, I measured how long it would take a young person to walk downtown. How long it would take an elderly person to go downtown. I counted bar stools. I identified eating places, the malls and the facilities that would make, that would be secondary and tertiary targets for our campaign. See, Walker was a freedom writer. This is so cool. He was a freedom writer. He was arrested more than 17 times. And when King called him to be part of his effort, what do you think he said? In the later interview, Walker said these words, I told King whatever he wanted me to do, I would do it. 
Now, how's that for loyalty? An undivided, unrivaled, you name it, I'll do it. Walker later testified to the sincerity of King's belief. He said, this is so cool, he said, people may laugh at this now, but King and I read the Bible, we prayed together, and we meditated on it. People may laugh now. Saying that the relationship that we shared, a common loyalty to God, was real, unembarrassed, and that's what fueled us, that's what gave us life. And Walker had no reservation about an undivided loyalty to King himself. Well, why is that? Why is that? Because Walker knew what he was about. He knew what was important to him. He knew what mattered. He knew there was a war raging. And he was ready to make the sacrifice. And that loyalty for him was a no brainer. Just simple, straightforward. That's exactly what Jesus has in mind. He comes before his disciples to all who are following him. Look back there again in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We see it again in verse 33. So therefore, any, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. How are we to understand Jesus' words here? They are so strong. Well, this is where, in some ways, I will say it helps to, um, to have insight into the original language. What does Jesus mean here when he says hating your father and mother and wife and children? What, your brothers, I mean, it's a very comprehensive list there, right? Parents, spouse, children, siblings. Even one's own life. What does it mean to hate your own life here? Well, the word, that, the Greek word for hate is a, is a in, 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 in a sort of in, in behind it that the Hebrew and Aramaic words for hate have a, have a much bigger range than our English word hate. In the sense that the word hate can have a range from anywhere to, like our word hate, to mean to detest, to just simply revile. So that's the one end of the spectrum. But the other end of the spectrum is, is you might simply have the word disregard. Disregard. And that's actually what the word we hear means. It's not hate in a sense of detesting, like I don't want anything to do with you. But it does still mean that there's a sense of disregard. A sense of, yeah, I mean, you're, you're great and all, but you're not first. You see that? So Jesus is saying here, look, if you're gonna come after me, if you're actually gonna be my disciple, He's not saying, hey, you're, I need you to detest your family members. No. He's saying, well, what I need you to do is to have a disregard for them. A willingness to actually put them second. And of course, in our day and age, this is very important, our day and age, especially in Western cultures, I mean, Sarah and I spent four years in the UK, and we, we, we certainly have found this or sensed this in the places where we live, that we live in a very um, individualistic culture, a very often non-family-centric culture. But throughout the ancient world and throughout, back through the majority world today, family is everything. And even we sense that, I don't know, I'm, I'm an outsider here, but my sense here in St. Louis is the family is a pretty big deal. Right? There's a lot of people I know that have, they have family, they have extended family here, they've lived here for generations, and family is everything. 
And that's how it was in Jesus' day for many of his disciples. Your brothers, your parents, your siblings, your children, they weren't just family. They were your social security network. If you lost them, if you were in the out with them, you, you may have nothing left. There was nowhere else to go for any sort of care and protection, provision. Who's going to take care of you when you're old? You didn't have a 401k. So you had to, like, even if you didn't like your kids, you had to, like, you know, make sure they liked you. Right? Or if you didn't like your parents, what did you have to do? Make sure they liked you. So there's this, this is really important idea, and this is so important here, this the idea that family can often functionally serve as that place of number one. And Jesus is very strong here about saying, look, if you're going to follow me, family has got to be a distant second. So Jesus here is asking, he's demanding an unrivaled loyalty, a loyalty unrivaled by kin, by family. And for many of you, that may present a significant challenge. You have a parent or an older sibling, perhaps, or your spouse whose opinion the weight of their opinion is just immense. They speak, and it is like the voice of a God. Right? Either you've given that to them in an unhealthy way, or they have demanded it of you. They have insisted on that kind of importance, that kind of significance in your life. And Jesus is calling us out of that. Now listen, this is important here. Why is Jesus doing this? Is he just doing it because he just wants to be first? I'm going to be first. I'm just most important. He does this because this is, this is what's so important. Because he knows best. He is the wisest. And he deserves our loyalty. He's on this mission. He is, like, he is not just like Martin Luther King. He is the king. And he is here to deliver from bondage. He is here to bring hope, to bring life and blessings to the world. And he's laying down his life for each and every one of us. And he knows that the place where we will flourish most is when he is first in our lives. And, and, listen, and don't, don't understand Jesus here to be somehow anti-family or anti-marriage. It's not. In fact, this is, well, listen up. This is just so important. The only way that you're going to really love your spouse, the only way that you're really going to love your child or your parents is if you put him first. You know why? Most of you parents, you kind of instinctively know this. If you care most what your child thinks about you, you will never be able to love them well. You know the permissive parent? The helicopter parent, the parent who can't tell their child no because they're scared about what they'll think about them. You're going to just, that's the kind of parent that destroys their child. See, we can only love our family when we put him first, when we care what he thinks about us first. So you see, if I know that Jesus welcomes me, if I know that Jesus cares about me, 
I know that Jesus' family cares about me. That I've got this other social unit, this other this, this group of people at church who may, you know, they may, you know, they may be difficult at times and struggle, but they're my real family. If I have that spiritual family and that spiritual father and that spiritual older brother, Jesus Christ, I am equipped, I am freed to love in difficult and challenging ways, because all love at times is difficult and challenging. To say the difficult thing to a spouse. To say the difficult thing to, the ch- to a child requires that we have a deeper allegiance. So Jesus is actually, he's not actually, he's actually not, he's not trying to, he's not trying to make family unimportant here. He's actually putting family back in its proper place. Where before it was tyrannical, now Jesus is saying, no, I'm the king. You put, make, make family second, or distance second or third. So Jesus, in love, Jesus demands that unrivaled devotion. Greater than kin, but not only kin, but also one's culture. Listen to this. You see that in verse 27. Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus saying there? Well, the cross, we think of the cross as sort of like a, we all have crosses to bear, and we sort of use it in this notion of just difficulties or struggles. Here, the notion of the cross, throughout the New Testament, actually, this is true, the notion of cross and crucifixion is always one of social rejection. It's the, to bear one's cross, according to Jesus in the New Testament and Paul, to, 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 to carry one's cross is to be willing to be, to be excluded, to be condemned by one's own culture, to be unpopular. So and that's, that's going to be a very difficult thing. We want to be welcomed. We want to be accepted by our culture. We want to be accepted by our, by our co-workers. We want to be accepted, and yet and Jesus is saying that that is completely mutually exclusive with following him. Again, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Let me refer back to, to, our, um, to this example again of, of, of Wyatt T. Walker, this reverend who said, I will do anything for king. And he was willing what? To be in a jail, to be condemned by the culture along with the king. My question to you this morning is, are you willing to be condemned by our culture along with the king? Because Jesus is saying that's what following him means. Putting your kin second putting your culture second, this distance second, being willing to disregard, to hate your culture, to hate your family, not in the terms of detesting, but in the terms of disregarding, not because you don't care about them, but precisely because you do. In fact, that's what often what leadership, what true leadership requires is a willingness to be disregard, the willingness to disregard, to be actually detested and maybe even hated by people that you're trying to love and lead. That's what true leadership is. And that's why a singular allegiance to Jesus Christ is so important if we're to make a difference in our world. 
So this, this, this beautiful idea, Jesus is saying, he demands a loyalty, an unrivaled loyalty, a loyal that, the loyalty that is above kin and above culture. And then he gives these two beautiful illustrations. They're very simple, I mean, where he speaks of the cost of discipleship and uses these two, you can verse, verse 28, he says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Verse 31, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he, has, he, ha, he is able with 10,000 soldiers to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Jesus is saying, are you ready? Do you know the cost of following me? It means having clarity in your mind regarding a priority with kin, with family, and with your culture. And being willing to to disregard them and to have it and to put me first. You know, let me say this personally in my own life. When it comes to this very issue of putting Jesus first, when it comes to this, this struggle to actually put aside things that he says I need to put aside, things that seem so life-giving, things that seem so essential. I can't imagine living without the approval of my parents, of my spouse, of my children. I can't imagine living, being on the out of my culture, being disregarded by I mean, whatever it be, my coworkers or, or, or the people in my field. When I have taken that step off that cliff, when I finally have said, okay, Jesus, fine, you're first in this particular area of my life, there has been a death. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> there is, and here's the thing about dying. When you're dying, it feels like you're dying. But on the other side of that is a resurrection and a freedom that is astonishing. A freedom that says, why didn't I do this sooner? <laughs> when you actually take the voices of family members and make them a distant second, it is the most liberating thing in the world. When you stop caring about what your culture says and all your coworkers and all, all these important people, when you stop caring about that and you get off the treadmill of the endless trying to approve, get approval of others, it is liberating. See, Jesus is calling us to, to an allegiance, an undivided allegiance that is going to be so freeing. I mean, yes, is it, is it also, is it going to cost you? Yes. And he, he makes that abundantly clear. But it is absolutely worth the cost, and I can speak to it just personally in my own life. As, as, as if, you know, because again, our lives are kind of like, you know, some of you may know, like when you, like on a, on a, on a, on a, a nice uh, speaker system or like in your car, you have that, that frequency, that range of frequencies, right, where you can sort of adjust the, 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 the sound on it, right? There are certain voices in our lives that Jesus calls us to turn the voice of that particular person down. 
Jesus is saying, turn me up and turn it down. Or think of culturally back like this. I don't know if you guys, if you ever go to the gym, but often people in the gym, there's music that the gym has on in the background that you can hear, but everyone, regardless of that music, what are they doing? They have their own what? Their own earbuds. And that's what, it, that's what Jesus is saying here. So if you go into the gym of life, your culture's got all these vo- voices playing its own music, asking you to march according to its drum. He says, I'm calling you to put in my earbuds to listen to me first. Okay? And, and so there's this cost, but along with this cost is, is this sense of life. In fact, most of you may know who Jim Elliott is. Jim Elliott was uh, a missionary. In Jim Elliott, it's probably his most famous line. He's this. Listen to these words, because they pertain directly to this passage. Jesus, or Jim, Jim Elliott says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say that again. He is, no, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. That's the cost. To gain what he cannot lose. So this morning, I want you to think about your life like a home, like a house. There's different rooms of the house. I want to ask you, are there aspects of your life? Are there various relationships in your life? that you have not given the key to Jesus. The various rooms in your life, that the bedroom, the kitchen, whatever where these rooms are, the entertainment room, you have not given those rooms, you have not given Jesus the key. You're like, uh-uh, you're not going in there. You haven't surrendered fully, you haven't given yourself to him, and there are voices in your head that are voices from family, voices from culture, that are still first. I want you to hear that Jesus is calling you to freedom. He's calling you to freedom. See, and this is so difficult because here's the thing. We live in a world, we live in a culture that worships personal choice. Personal choice is everything. And we always think, oh, that's what I want. More choices. I want to be able to choose. I want to be able to choose. Yeah, actually, I'm going to push back and say that's not what you want. It's actually not what you want at all. Here's why. Let me give you an example. I've used this before, but think of how many of you, how many of you, uh, you ever use Google Maps to go somewhere? I confess, being new to St. Louis, I use Google Maps like all the time. Okay, I'm constantly using it. And here's the thing of Google Maps. You look at Google Maps, often when you're you're sort of, you're on on route, you'll see that Google Maps will give you an alternate, alternate path. It'll say like three minutes longer or four minutes longer. And whenever I see those, you know what I think? I think, why in the world would I go on that route for? It's like five minutes longer. Like, what, what's, it's giving me choices. And shouldn't I, should I be happy? Oh, I have so many choices. I don't want choices. What do I want? I just want to get there. I want to get there as fast as I can. And you know, you know why I don't want, you know why I don't want to have choices? Because I know where I want to go. And let me ask you, do you know where you want to go this morning? Do you know what you really want in life? Because if you do, you just want the blue line. You want the one way. You want to know, is there an authority, someone with a, a Google Maps view of the world that can show me the exact way to where I want to go? Because if that's the case, I don't care about any of their voices. 
I don't care about any other, other options or alternatives. I don't want choice. I want someone who is this life-giving authority, who knows exactly what's best for me, who's going to care for me, who's going to help me navigate difficult family dynamics, difficult issues in my marriage, who's going to help me turn down the voices in my life that just rule me and control me. That's going to keep me from being a sheep led to the slaughter, just following all like lemmings, my whole culture. The culture saying, do this, do this, this is so important. Okay. What's going to say, who's going to save you from all of those competing voices? It's one who loves us enough to demand, to really demand our, our allegiance to him. And that's exactly what he's doing. And understand, this devotion, this loyalty is life-giving not only for us, it's life-giving for all those around us. Jesus says here, look, what makes you different in life is going to be this allegiance to me. And this allegiance to me that's going to make you different makes you like what? Salt. You know what salt is, right? Salt gives life. It preserves. It gives taste. And Jesus says, look, if you don't have an allegiance to me, if you really functionally you put family first, if functionally you put kin first, if functionally you put your culture first, your culture first, he says, you're like salt. That's, that's lost its saltiness. Look there in verse, you see that in verse 24. Salt is good. Verse 34. But if it, if it has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Jesus is saying, look, if you don't put me first, this is all just a show. You're no different from any other. There are a lot of people out there who think Jesus is a good guy. So I'm not asking you to be a good guy. I'm asking you to be in charge. And Jesus says, look, if we lose our saltiness, if we don't put him first, if we don't have our exclusive allegiance in him, Jesus says, you're like salt. That's lost the saltiness. Verse 35, it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus says, if you're going to be a life-giving presence in, in our world today, you have got to put me first, way out first. Is that what you want to do? Are you ready? Are you ready to count the cost of discipleship? Are you ready to, to simply to, to, to say, you know, there are things in my life, there are, there are relationships, there are voices that I need to think about in a whole different way. Let me close with this. And Sarah and I, I can't believe this, it's 14 long years ago, actually over 14 long years ago, that Sarah and I, or I should say Sarah, was expecting our twins. And uh, she, gave, uh, she gave birth right around 33 and a half weeks uh, out, of the, out of the 40. And she was, but, but it was at week 27 that she was admitted to the hospital to be put on bed rest. So do the math there. Six and a half weeks on bed rest in the hospital. And it was on a Saturday morning at 7.14, I was at home, she called me, and she was uh, laughing with joy because her water had finally at last broke, and these little ones were on the way, and she was going into, into, into labor. And the doctor who had been assigned to her at the very beginning was the head of obstetrics, obstetrics for the entire hospital. His name, look at this, his name was Dr. Jim Thorpe. The name like Jim Thorpe, right? I mean, it's like that'd be the greatest doctor ever, right? So he, he was assigned to her, and, and over the period of six and a half weeks that he would check up on her, they, de they developed this beautiful relationship. It was a wonderful bond. 
he would come in and see her. And then sometimes, in fact, the, 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 the obstetrics department, the hospital was undermanned, and he was working all the time. And sometimes he would literally just slip into her room, close the door, just to hide, <laughs> just to get away. And they, they built this, this beautiful relationship where he cared for her. And loved her. There were times I'd be visiting, I'd be, and I'd be asking questions. I'd be wasn't sure about, you know, I kind of was nervous, anxious for my wife, and say, "Well, shouldn't we do this, Sarah? Shouldn't should we do? Shouldn't you tell the doctors this or something?" And she was pitted between her husband, whom she loved, and her doctor, who was an expert. <laughs> and what should she have done, and what did she do? Ignore her husband. Okay, and we're still married. We're still married. Was everything good? I'm okay. I got over it. She ignored her spouse and listened to the voice of an authority. In fact, the day that big day came, and uh, it was because it was you know twins, it was considered a high risk pregnancy, and so the delivery was actually in the in the, in the OR in the operating room. And the first child came out, um, Lydia, no problem. The second one was not coming out, though. We won't say who that was <laughs> and how difficult it was. She was breech, and this is a training hospital, so there were two residents, two residents who, were, who were attending the, the delivery. And as we realized that, um, I would tell this here without crying here, um, that Rosemary, uh, that there were some complications there, and she wasn't coming out. Uh, I was thinking, man, these two residents, I don't know. This is the best thing. And right at that time, the OR, do OR doors swing wide open. And guess who walks in? Dr. Jim Thorpe. He rolls up his sleeves, confident voice. Says, hi, Sarah, how you doing? He looks, looks at the two residents and says, back off, boys. This girl's mine. <laughs> I've walked with her through thick and thin for the last six weeks. See, that's the liberating, beautiful aspect of an authority, of authority. Someone shows up who knows you inside and out, who lays down his life for you, and he's saying, follow me, follow me, follow me in every aspect of your life. Put me first. Put me first above kin, above your culture. And I promise you, you will be a life. Not only will you receive life from that, not only will it be liberating from you, because you won't, you'll be freed from having to figure your life out. Freed from always trying to navigate on your own according to your own opinions. You'll be freed from all that. You're free simply to follow his advice, to do what he says. It's so liberating. And again, Dr. Thorpe asked Sarah how she was doing and I, could, I just remember Dr. Thorpe's voice. I looked over at Sarah, and I could see her smiling ear to ear. And she was tearing up. She was so relieved. She knew that she was in great hands. And he asked her, he said, you ready to follow my lead? And she nodded. And he says, okay, let's get this little beautiful girl out. And the rest is history. But we have someone wiser than a doctor who is an expert in the care of souls. Will you surrender? fully to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly 